Uh, I'd like to make just a, a few comments on behalf of the Triangle Vegetarian Society. My name is Lauren Hart, and uh, I've helped organize this event um, mainly because our president, Dilip Barman, uh, is in California right now. So that's how I fell into this, and I'm very happy that it worked out like that because uh, Will uh, Tuttle and Madeline, Madeline Tuttle are uh, people doing work that I really respect, and it's uh, an honor for me to be able to be here and to introduce them to you all. Thank you so much for coming, and uh, congratulations on what you did to that potluck. That was that was astounding. Uh, I've never seen uh, so much food, uh, or such a high percentage of our food eaten. So well done there. Um, <laughs> I'd also uh, just like to make uh, a brief announcement about, um, we have some literature uh, that I brought that's out there. Uh, if you think this might be helpful to you, please take as much as you want if you want more. I have plenty more. I think I brought maybe three or four things. We have compassionate choices and easy vegan recipes and another one called sustainable eating. Um, these are great if you're exploring yourself or if you want to uh, help other people understand where you're coming from. Um, and you could also get these for free from the organizations or for next to free and pass them out in mass, which is what um, some of us do, including myself. You can stand out in the street or on a college campus and hand out hundreds of these um, and, you know, depending on your own reaction to what Will's going to say tonight, maybe some of this is new to you, but uh, I think it's easy to um, be, become really upset when you, when you focus on these issues that Will's going to talk about. Um, and I find that a very useful thing to do to kind of overcome despair is to be active, to do something about it, to help raise consciousness. Um, Will's book is a phenomenal tool for that. Um, especially for people that are at a place where they're willing to go in depth. Um, these are, are, you know, you can get many of these and, and hand these out and, um, and these can plant seeds in people's minds. So these are great resources for that. Uh, what else would I like to say? I guess make a couple other administrative announcements. Uh, if you don't know the Triangle Vegetarian Society, started in the mid 80s. We meet about twice a month. We usually have one potluck or two potlucks, sometimes at uh, places like this, places of worship. Uh, we, we travel all around the Triangle. We frequently meet with the, at the Friends House in Durham. We recently met at the Kadampa Buddhist Center in Raleigh. Um, we also meet at our members, the, the homes of our members. And uh, I would like to tell you that our next, about our next two events uh, are coming up at the end of this month on Saturday. May 31st, we have, uh, we'll be meeting at the home of Barry and Tink in Chapel Hill. We'll be having a, a potluck, and then uh, Barry will be giving a talk on the relationship between Judaism and vegetarianism. Um, so I expect that to be quite good. And just before the potluck starts, uh, we'll be watching a movie called A Sacred Duty, which is a, an hour-length film. Uh, it's really good. It's, it addresses... Um, Jew the, the film addresses Jewish values uh, as they relate to vegetarianism and kind of our environment. Uh, it's, it's really worth checking out. I'm, I'm not Jewish, but I totally appreciate where they were coming from. So I think uh, anyone who cares about the world and, and these issues would, would find it interesting. And it's well done. Uh, and then the very next day is Sunday. That's June 1st. And we will be meeting for a brunch at the home of Joy Anandi one of our members, that's in Durham. Um, that's from 1 to 1.30 on Sunday. So you all are invited to join us for that. Um, more details are on the website. You, do you have to be a member to come to a Triangle Vegetarian Society event? You don't. You can come as long as you want um, without being a member. So please, whether you're a member or not, feel always welcome. 
Um, let's see. I'm trying to think if there's anything else administrative I should say. Can anybody think of anything I'm forgetting? Next potlucks. Humane Carolina. Humane Carolina. Um, another group that you may be interested to know about is Humane Carolina, which is a, an animal activist group. Um, so that relates very much to what we're talking about tonight, too. Um, and we're here today in the Unity Spiritual Life Center. Um, and we have the spiritual leaders, Bill and Cher Holton, who are with us today. And uh, it would be great if maybe you all could come up and say a couple words about Unity Spiritual Life Center. Thank you. And then I'll introduce Will, and then we'll get to it. But the good news is, guys, we'll keep it brief. <laughs> uh, we just want to say that, uh, again, welcome to our center. And uh, you notice we use the word center and, and not church. Uh, we do have church services on Sunday at 1030. Uh, it's one of our educational outreach programs. Uh, we are a spiritual education center. Unity originally was founded uh, as a spiritual education movement. And, um, and so that's how we see our center as well. Our focus is spiritual education. Uh, on a more practical, positive, progressive Christianity for the 21st century. And um, so, so, so we carry that tradition uh, along with us. We have a little um, bit of literature in, in our education center. So on the way out, if you're interested, there's a white basket there. You'll pass it that has um, one of our tracks that tells you all about us and what we do. And it tells you basically our five principles. We don't have dogma. That's one of the things that sets unity apart from other other organizations. And uh, our five basic principles are simply that we believe there's one God, uh, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. We believe that each person has that spark of divinity within them, so we are inherently good, each person. We believe in the power of our thinking to co-create our experience. We believe in the power of prayer and meditation as our connection with divine spirit. And most importantly, we believe that it's not enough to know truth, it's important to practice it in everything we do. So we are delighted to have you here because we know that you practice that and we are great to, it's great to have a chance to share with this particular group. We're delighted to have you here. And we're excited to hear Will. So Lauren, we're gonna turn So thank you very much for that. And, and thank you for hosting and co-hosting this event. Um, so I'd like to say a little bit about uh, Will and Madeline and, and the World Peace Diet and the work that they're doing. Um, first of all, you may be interested to know if the World Peace Diet is a good book, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, I would say it's a very good book, and it's definitely worth checking out. It's definitely worth getting a copy and, and, and reading it. Um, but, you know, don't just take my word for it. There's other people who have said really nice things. Uh, John Mackey is the founder of Whole Foods, and he said that, I am grateful for this powerful and cogent book. It has stretched my thinking and heart about animals' compassion in our society. Um, and then there was a review in Satya magazine um, which said this, a profoundly, a profoundly insightful and important book, The World Peace Diet, is sure to be a catalyst and powerful tool in the evolution of human consciousness. Dr. Joanna Macy, she's the author of Coming Back to Life, said that Will Tuttle brings a priceless perspective not only to the planetary crisis confronting us, confronting us all, but also to powerful ways we can each affect it. Um, I find the book to be very relative to my life and the life that we're all living. Um, I'll give you just one example. Uh, Will talks, Will and Madeline have done some traveling. Uh, 
Will says late in the book that um, just give me a second. Well, okay, it's on the right page all along. He was uh, he spent some time in in Korea, and. Well, I'm sorry. Just give me one second. Oh, here he is. Korea's on two pages back to back. That's the confusion. So uh, he says he was there and he, he noticed their style of agriculture. And then he saw changes happening. He says, there were Texas cattlemen were traveling to Korea, taking the opportunity to show investors how to convert rice paddies to cattle feedlots. Instead of feeding many people with rice, an area of land would now feed only a few rich people and beef, oh, I'm sorry, would feed only a few rich people with beef and raise the price of rice beyond what the poor people could afford, while creating the environmental nightmare of waste and pollution that modern animal agriculture always brings. So, you know, if you've been watching the news now, you know about what's going on with the food crisis and, 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 and people starving and, and riots. Um, this, this addresses that issue. Um, I'd also like to tell you, uh, read another passage, which I think... Uh, gives you a very good flavor for the tone of the book overall. Um, it says, Within us lie seeds of awakening and compassion that may be already sprouting. Our individual journeys of transformation and spiritual evolution call us to question who and what we've been told we and others are, to discover and cultivate the seeds of insight and clarity within us, and to realize the connections we've been taught to ignore. As we do this, and as our web of journeys interweaves within our culture, cross-fertilizing and planting seeds, we continue the transformation that is now well underway and transcend the obsolete old paradigm that generates cycles of violence. When we uproot exclusion and domination from our plates, seeds of compassion can finally freely <coughs> blossom. And this process depends primarily on us watering the seeds and fully contributing our unique journey. We depend on each other, and as we free the beans we call animals, we will regain our freedom. Loving them, we will learn to love each other and be fully loved. So that gives you a flavor for the book, but that's not all that Will and Madeline do. They, they do a whole lot of stuff. Um, so Will is an educator, a composer, a pianist, and a writer. He's been an animal rights activist and a peace activist and writer for 20 years and vegan for 27 years. He's the recipient of the Peace Abbey's Courage of Conscience Award. And if you don't know anything about the Peace Abbey, about this particular award, I definitely uh, encourage you to go online and check that out. Um, basically, uh, the Peace Abbey is a multi-faith retreat center in Massachusetts. And it honors, this, this particular award, honors those who work for nonviolence and love. Um, some of the past recipients include Mother Teresa, Thich Nhat Hanh, Daniel Berrigan, Rosa Parks, uh, the co-founders of PETA, uh, Alex Pacheco and Ingrid Newkirk, Howard Zinn, Lori and Jean Boston, who co-founded the Farm Sanctuary, Howard Lyman, and Eddie Lama. Will is on the board of advisors of EarthSave International, and he writes a bi-monthly column for Veg News magazine uh, called Food for Thought. So this is the latest edition of Veg News. I got this one at Weaver Street today on my way over here. Uh, it's a good magazine. It builds itself as a vegetarian news, politics, food, travel, and buzz source. And... Uh, and this is Will's column here and down here. So I encourage you to check out that magazine. Let's see. 
Uh, Will has presented concerts, lectures, and seminars throughout North America and Europe. He received his PhD in education from the University of California at Berkeley, focusing on edu uh, educating intuition and altruism. He's taught college courses in philosophy, humanities, mythology, and comparative religion. He's a Zen priest and a Dharma master in the Korean Zen tradition. He's currently conducting a music, art, and education ministry with his wife, Madeline, and she is an artist from Switzerland. So that gives you a bit of a flavor for, for what their work is and for, um, and for the book. And uh, maybe we can just tell them now um, that we're thankful that they're here and look forward to hearing what Will has to say and hearing some music. I think um, we should give a big hand to Lauren for working so hard to put this together. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you to, the, uh, to the Unity Center here as well. I'm very grateful. And I always like to encourage everyone to uh, please support local grassroots organizations like the Triangle Vegetarian Society and the Unity Center Spiritual. What is it again? Spiritual, Spiritual Life Center. Spiritual Life Center. USLC. Uh, right, right, right. <laughs> Uh, because I think you know, this is where the real work gets done. And I'd like to uh, thank you all for joining us this evening and talk a little bit, as we just heard, about the main ideas in the book that we were just hearing about the World Peace Diet. And uh, what I'd like to say um, <clears throat> mainly about the book, well, maybe before I start, how many people in here feel that you are Understanding what animals endure uh, routinely uh, to become food on our plates in this culture. How many people in here think you know quite a bit about that, or you understand that pretty well? Some of you, quite a few of you, some. Yeah. How many people don't want to hear a word more about it? <laughs> a few people maybe. Don't tell me anything more. I don't want to hear. Uh, I won't be going into the uh, gruesome details. They are very gruesome, but I won't, you know, be going into that. I don't, I don't have any hidden video that I'm going to show spring on you. I used to do that when I was teaching college sometimes. It, you know, I found out when I was teaching college, you can kind of talk about it, and, and the students don't take it that seriously. Then I would show a video, and they go, why didn't you say it was like that? I didn't know it was so bad. <laughs> you see some of the videos of what animals go through, and it's really heartbreaking. And it's actually ongoing, <coughs> right, as we speak. Uh, right here in North Carolina. But um, what I'd like to uh, do mainly is just give us uh, an, a, just a sense of the main ideas in the book. I have a tendency sometimes when I'm giving this talk or a talk about the book to begin to speak faster and faster because I have this feeling like there's no way I can do justice to the, the amount of material here in a given amount of time. Uh, but I'm going to try to uh, avoid that and speak you know, in a relatively slow manner uh, <laughs> and just uh, sort of cover what I can and just hopefully you will actually read the book and get the bigger picture. But um, the basic thing, this book actually was quite a bit longer, it's a little over 300 pages and they, uh, the edit, in the editing process the editors like shrunk it down quite a bit and they said you can never repeat anything ever, you know. So, so um, it's, <laughs> I, we just did an audio book, if anyone wants to get this as an audio book it's really coming out soon. It's 13 hours long, uh, unabridged. I read the whole thing. And um, so just in a short time here, maybe in an hour, I'll, what I'd like to do is um, just touch on some of the main ideas. 
And then we can have a little discussion afterwards. I'm happy to answer questions and things. The basic idea, some of you who have read the book or, or are familiar with it know that um, the basic idea in the book is to try to help us to see what has been hidden and invisible about ourselves and our culture and to see and understand the profound ramifications of that, the reverberations, how that just plays out in our lives and in our culture. And these are ideas that have just not been discussed because it's taboo. It's a taboo to talk about this. So that's, I think, one of the reasons we don't have you know, hundreds and thousands of people all wanting to hear about this. It's sort of like, you're not supposed to talk about this. <laughs> uh, but we, here we are talking about it. So thank you again for being the courageous pioneers to be here to um, you know, think about these ideas. The basic um, <clears throat> idea is that our culture has a hidden core mentality that is in ritually injected into every one of us, just by virtue of the fact of being born in this culture and being raised in this culture and being um, influenced at a very deep, profound level by all of the institutions of our culture, and by institutions I mean the family, education, religion, science, medicine, government, law, economics, and media. Um, this whole the system that we're born into um, influences us profoundly. Whatever, whatever culture we're born into will influence us profoundly. The basic place I come from, actually I can say this in a unity center, is that what we are is more than just a material thing that's been programmed by a culture. I believe what we are is actually an eternal spiritual being. But uh, for the point of what I'm saying, we're, we're, we find ourselves born into a culture, we land in a culture that has this invisible core and a few of the um, characteristics of this mentality um, that of the culture we're born into, I think it's important to emphasize. I think the fundamental one, really, probably, in a sense, is a mentality of reductionism. That at a very deep level we're taught to that certain beings um, we, uh, we, we can reduce to things, to commodities, to objects of the body soul. And one of the things that it's very important to understand is that whatever we do to others, we end up doing to ourselves. And what I found actually in the research in the book, whatever we do to animals, we end up doing to ourselves, which is a very sobering thought, now that they're microchipping animals. <laughs> but anyway, um, so <clears throat> one of the basic ideas is that we're born into a culture that has at its living core a mentality of reductionism. And I think we live, if we look deeply into, for example, science and religion, we'll see a lot of reductionism in both of these um, institutions. Uh, and it's reducing beings to things. And uh, what goes along with that is a mentality of privilege, and which, uh, <clears throat> in a sense, that certain beings are seen to inherently be worthy, more worthy, worthy than others. And uh, these ideas are not just sort of casually talked about. They're not talked about really at all. No one says this. This is why they're so powerful. It's just contained in the way this culture is set up, and especially in the food. And anthropologists have discovered, basically, that uh, religions, I mean, excuse me, that cultures propagate their values and mores through food uh, as the central way, because the attitudes surrounding who we are, our relationship to animals, to nature, to the God, society, everything is contained in our food and in, in the meal rituals that we go through every day, uh, three, typically three times a day. So there's this mentality of privilege 
which leads also to a mentality of elitism, that there's a certain, uh, you know, classes of beings, uh, inherently their interests are more worthy to be protected, uh, depending on their income, their race, their gender, their age, and their species. And so, as, so, this, so there's certain beings, for example, animals, and specifically pigs, chickens, cows, turkeys, and ducks, if you're born as one of those, you, you have no interests. Your interests are not, I mean, for example, if a veterinarian were to castrate a dog, if you took your dog in to be fixed, uh, without using anesthesia, that veterinarian could very well lose their license for cruelty to that dog. And we have every day millions of cows and pigs and goats and sheep are castrated and they never use anesthesia. And, and is it because they just don't mind the pain? <laughs> no, it's because we don't care about their experience of pain. So these animals, their interests routinely are of no consequence. They're seen merely as, as meat. So this is a mentality also of materialism, uh, that the only ultimate reality is matter. Uh, you don't see a being, you just see a thing. You see a hunk of flesh. You know, women learn to you know, receive that kind of look. Men learn to look with that kind of look. You just see a thing that is here to be used as an instrument. And because we eat that every day, we eat, we eat chickens, pigs, cows, and turkeys, and ducks that have been reduced to mere matter to be used. And so we practice this. So it's a practice. And there's an old saying in German, Übung macht den Meister. That means practice makes the master. Whatever we practice regularly, we become very good at. We, and so what we become masters at in our culture through repetition, through sacred practice, it's not really sacred, but through, the <laughs> through practice, regular daily practice, is of the art of disconnecting. We become so good at disconnecting because we learn every day to disconnect the reality that's on our plate from the realities that it took to get it onto our plate. We learn just to not think about that and to not connect and not make the connections that are really quite obvious if we just took a moment and thought about it. Uh, but we have McDonald's saying that the burgers come from a burger patch, you know, and so we think, oh yeah, it's just like, you know, you kind of, just like an apple, you just pluck, pluck, pluck a burger off of a, you know, it's just kind of wrapped in plastic, the cheese is wrapped in plastic, the milk's in a nice little container, the eggs are in these cute little things, and everything is just massive disconnectedness. The media just absolutely, you know, supports that. Everything supports that we don't, because we don't want to think about what we're doing. So this mentality of disconnectedness pervades our culture, and it's really important to understand that intelligence, from a system's uh, point of view, is the ability of any system to make meaningful connections and, uh, and feedback. So whether it's a society or an animal or a human or uh, <coughs> whatever, uh, our intelligence is our ability to make connections. So this, this really intense practice we get at disconnecting is also the practice of becoming more and more stupid, unfortunately, as a culture. And I think any uh, one, if we were to come here from another planet and just come to this Earth and see this beautiful planet and see the abundance of resources that we have here, we would think, how could these people create so much suffering and misery for themselves? There's plenty to feed everyone. Right now, we're growing enough food to feed, depending on which expert you believe, between you know, 10 and 12 billion people. That's how much food we're growing. And yet we have massive starvation. We have a billion people chronically hungry and malnourished. They can't get enough food and they're starving to death. We have approximately another billion that are overweight and obese. And we have, because we're feeding enormous amounts of grain 
probably you know 70 80 percent of the grain to animals who then eat their flesh or their secretions and and while other people starve because they can't afford what the rich people have to buy the grain for their animals and so we, we are in a situation where we could easily live in, in a sustainable way with justice and happiness and there's plenty for everyone and yet we've managed to create a system that we just don't seem to be able to begin to act with real wisdom and intelligence. And it's this ritual of disconnectedness practiced at every meal that I think separates us from our natural intelligence. And so we can just disconnect from the devastation of the forests. We just disconnect. We, you know, the, the suicide rates of children, we just disconnect. We don't think about that. The devastation of the rainforest, disconnect there. The war that we're causing and the misery we're causing other people, we just disconnect from that. We are so good at disconnecting and that keeps us from actively and intelligently dealing with the problems that we're generating. So it's uh, the other dimension of this uh, mentality, besides the ones I've already mentioned, is that, that it is a mentality also of predation. We're taught essentially that we're predators, that we're just predatory. You know, we would love nothing. I mean, I can just see every one of you. I'm sure when you go out and you see a dog or a cat, you just start salivating, thinking, oh, I just love to. <laughs> you know, just biting, have the blood in my mouth. Oh, it's good to be a carnivore. You know? I mean, if anything, we're vultures. We eat dead, rotting meat. You know, we, I mean, but the idea that we're carnivorous is so absurd, and yet we're taught, we're forced to eat the dead flesh of animals. And if you just go to a supermarket and look at what kids get if they once they lose their mother's breast. I think only about 5% of babies actually get their mother's breast anymore, but anyway, um, that the little jars are filled with veal and chicken and turkey and beef and cheese and all these things. So we're taught at the deepest level by the people we most trust and respect unquestioningly that we're essentially carnivorous because we're eating the flesh of animals that have been attacked and stabbed and killed. and, and um, so I think that's the reason we create predatory economic systems and essentially competitive predatory structures that, that because we're forced into this uh, kind of a situation. But I think anyone knows that if we go deep within ourselves, we see that the essential joy that we get is from helping others, from blessing others, from finding our unique way of contributing to the happiness of others. That's where we get real joy. No one gets joy uh, unless we're very wounded and perverted. Uh, from harming others. That is not at all our essential nature, and yet we're born into a culture that that has at its core this this mentality of seeing beings as things and of preying upon them, preying upon each other. And so even though we attack animals, we create this mentality of attacking, and so eventually we find that we're, we create systems of attack and war. And so, um, what I think the, the key to all this is to understand that, and the, and the very positive message I think really in the book, and in, not just in the book, but I think in the situation that we're in, in our world, is that we, can, if we understand this, we can, we can change easily, really. It's not that hard for us to change individually. We can uh, make different food choices. Uh, we can no longer take out our wallet and pay someone to cause misery and terror and fear and pain and anxiety and suffering and panic in other living beings and animals and also in the human beings who have to do that work. We have a whole armies of people who do nothing but stab animals 
and also to the future generations who are inheriting a planet that's being devastated, and also just to the other people who are starving. Because you know, when I take out my wallet, there's a lot of repercussions. And so when I uh, pay for the flesh and secretions of brutalized animals, I'm basically um, voting for this system to happen. And if we don't vote for it, then it won't happen. I mean, if, if all of us change, this will we can transform our culture. And I think this is the uh, enormously positive message inherent in this, is that we as human beings are not essentially um, predatory and essentially uh, violent and exploitive and oppressive and uh, reductionistic, but that we're born into a culture that brings that out of us. And this, this gives us the possibility to be agents of change, of positive change, of, of the evolution, for the evolution of our culture in a positive way. And there's nothing, I think, more joy-inducing than to be part of the transformation of this culture in a positive way. And we can each play a part in this. We, every one of us can find our way of plugging in and being part of this. And so the, the key is to understand how this all fits together and how it all works. Uh, in my own life, uh, I'll just kind of say this briefly, but in my own life, I was born in a family in, um, actually in Concord, Massachusetts, um, which was kind of neat because um, that's actually, I found out later, where vegetarianism kind of came into this country in the very beginning, uh, not the very beginning, but in the, 18, in the mid um, 1800s, uh, Thoreau, and I was born in Emerson Hospital and went to the uh, Thoreau School and learned to swim in Walden Pond. And, but I found out later that these people were really talking about uh, kindness to animals, becoming vegetarian. In fact, uh, it was Alcott, Bronson Alcott, who was the father of Louisa May Alcott, the famous author. They started the very first community called Fruitlands in uh, some land right outside Concord in Harvard. And uh, Madeline and I went and visited this place. And it's so interesting. They, they created this community where they didn't eat any animal foods. They didn't um, uh, wear any leather, and they wouldn't even wear cotton because they felt like in 1840, this was cotton came from uh, from the South where they had slavery, so they didn't want to pay for cotton um, and pay for slavery, you know, slave labor. So they were trying to really live an ethical life, and so there they were, these people walking around in January through the snowdrifts in in shoes made out of linen. <laughs> these are the first hardcore vegans in our country. 